0: I'm sorry, Dave.
1: I'm afraid I can't do that. Groovy. Yeah, I've had perfect it weather for the last week. Just tons of rain, storms coming through, lightning. It was good. That's it weather. That's it. Yeah. Well, I always think of the first scene of it. You know, with the uh, Georgie going down the storm drain. That's that's what sets it weather in my mind. That one scene is so iconic. That's just it weather for the rest of the series.
0: I nice guess I could see that. I, I say I'm. I, I feel like it's more of a. Um... Late summer type of movie.
1: Oh, I mean, it definitely is a
0: summer movie, but there's something about, like, uh, just
1: all the rain. It seems like it should be a fall or maybe spring kind of day, at least for
0: Chapter 1. Chapter 2 doesn't quite have that feeling, but you're probably going to want to watch those together. I agree. What a weird conversation this was, just was.
1: There, there's, there's feelings to movies, and they have certain days that work better for them. Even if it doesn't work with the setting of the movie necessarily. Like Friday the thirteenth is a weird one to place because they're all really just like summer camp movies. A good summer think...
0: occasionally.
1: Yeah, it was yeah, I don't sit there and go, hmm yeah, it's it's now summer. I have to watch Friday the thirteenth. It's Jersey summer. It's just different. It's kinda gross. Part like uh Jason takes Manhattan, that does not seem like a summer movie at all.
0: No. Uh, no, fuck no.
1: Isn't no. it in winter when he gets to Manhattan? <laughs> I think it is. I think you're right. Um, um. They're They're taking a cruise for a school reason, so it's like prom or homecoming or something. That's a movie where it docks at Crystal Lake.
2: <laughs> you can't apply logic there,
1: <laughs> that's true. well, that's the thing. There's a feel to it. It doesn't have to necessarily align to the logic of the film. We're like oh it's uh it's a nice July day, but it's thirty below. It doesn't matter it's It's what's presented in the feel of the movie.
0: I you know every Elm Street is spring, is it not necessarily, but they all feel like spring movies.
1: Uh, okay, I was going to say, Nightmare 2 is like, uh, they just moved to a new town, so I assume it's like a
0: new school year.
2: Look, it has to be a certain temperature so that Freddy's sweater isn't out of
0: place. Girl, Dreamscape's very cold, he's chilly, but and, but he's also got to keep the souls on his chest warm. recorder's on, by the way. Good.
1: I oh, I, I just thought this was just the episode.
0: I want the conversation to
1: go to the world. I'm trying to think, oh, another one, the uh, the Fright Night remake. The opening scene is set at night, and it's a very, very strong night scene. So it doesn't matter that there's a bunch of scenes in that movie that, like, take place in the day or whatever. I, I just think that movie is like, oh, I can only watch this if it's, like, 8 o'clock at night. That's <laughs> really fucking weird. weird. It's got to be, like, 8 o'clock, dark, clear night. No rain. That's, that movie that's takes place night, in remake.
0: fucking Nevada in the yes. middle of the day. <laughs> yeah, that's why it can't be rainy.
2: Okay, how have you somehow moved on? From obsessing about the seasons you watch movies to the
1: time of day. Uh, I mean, that's a part of it. So, you know, you break down by season, then you go, oh, this is definitely a that time of day movie. This is a that time of day movie. I am really Chris. fucking
0: concerned for you.
2: Oh, like, I'm watching a Christopher Nolan movie. Time to kill my wife.
1: What? <laughs> <laughs> True. That's, that's a logical cool extension of it. I'm just saying, stand by me. You would never watch it like 8 o'clock at night. It'd feel weird. That's a day movie. You people are busy sometimes they can't watch movies well, I mean, I, I, look look I'll admit it I watched stand by me at night because that's when I got the disc but I felt wrong about it ideally stand by me would be a uh, late summer movie and you pop it on at like a good five o'clock
2: I watched stand by me at 930 at night this week
1: you're a fucking monster
2: I put on my mood lighting it was very nice
1: was the mood lighting the sun so it looked like it was the afternoon the way it should be <laughs>
2: Cody I watched Nightflyer at 9 a.m.
1: <laughs> Good thing it's not cider season. You have scalded yourself. Anyways, are we ready to start the episode? Can we start the episode, please? Yeah, let's let's start the episode. Yeah, we should start the episode. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Tonight, we're diving into the wave pool that is Stephen King film adaptions, and, and probably some like the TV miniseries and Maybe regular series. There's a lot of Stephen King. We're gonna, we're going to talk about a lot of King. Anyways, dear constant listeners, I'm your host Cody. Joining me for this episode is my very own Katat. Long days and pleasant nights, Jamie.
2: I've actually managed to come back to this podcast again and for more. So I'm three for three. The the polite answer was,
1: and "May you have twice the number," but that's fine. That's we're we're still buddies. Um, and Mike, may your first day in hell last ten thousand years, and may it be the shortest vroom i'm a car that was the correct response you have passed the test hey hey, hey, hey.
0: good (laughs) now the audience knows exactly how we all are (laughs) then we just end the episode
1: that was the episode people understand when to watch stand by me (laughs) and how to respond when i give you dark tower quotes
0: this was a box
2: office for constructional video
0: (laughs) and then the vhs tape ends this is uh, random, anyways. but can um, our new tagline be Box Office Pulp, the only podcast that serves the beam? <laughs> if See, someone has a orig- claimed
1: that, we should take it. It's original and accurate. Anyways, uh, segue. So we're recording this uh, the week after It, Chapter 2, came out. Uh, and naturally, we wanted to do something Stephen King related to kind of cash in or to be more kind to ourselves, celebrate his legacy. Uh, so I said, hey, let's do a two-parter the first episode will be good king movies, and the second one will be bad king movies. And then I realized, uh, shortly after telling everyone that's what we should do, that was a terrible, stupid idea. And here we are, because I haven't communicated that it was a terrible, stupid idea to anyone besides myself. Let's just think about it for a minute, what I, what I proposed here. Good king and bad king. What the fuck does that mean? Like, is it a matter of the film's actual quality? Is it the faithfulness to the source material? Or does it just boil down to whether I just really like silver Bullet? I don't have answers. I didn't. I didn't talk to the rest of the crew about how we should parse this out, ladies and gentlemen. So it's going to be a roller coaster of bad choices.
0: Well, I don't know about you guys, but I thought we were going off the very important criteria whenever ranking Stephen King adaptations, which is how often people refer to other people as Hoss. Uh,
1: I was actually going to assign ranking criteria to every movie, like, and, and give it scores based on one how many times does Stephen King appear in this film, to how how strong is the main accent being used in the film. Like, Pet Cemetery is clearly the best one. And the worst might be Graveyard Shift. Uh, the evil foreman in that movie, I thought he was German or something the first time I watched it. I didn't understand he was trying to sound like he was from the East Coast. <laughs> but uh, I realized that would be tough, because by Wikipedia's count, there are, as of 2019... Ninety-six different movies, TV shows, and miniseries all based off of Stephen King's stories. Uh, My just like God! The United States, not not counting like Indian It or people that made like short films or fan films or whatever else that didn't actually see distribution. And that's that's just what's out there for the end of 2019. Uh, more piling up. Just the other day, uh, Stephen King had a new book that hit shelves: The Institute. And the same day it hit shelves, it was announced there's going to be a limited series coming out for that. Uh, The Stand is going to be on CBS All Access like next year or something. Doctor Sleep is coming out in like two months from now. I think that's on the list of the 96th. And even The Dark Tower is getting a second chance on Amazon of all places after the total flop of the motion picture version. So. We've been
2: we're in a in a universe where Mister Mercedes has been on the air for like three years.
1: Yeah, it, did, did the third season of that just wrap up, or has it just like been given the green light? I think they it's given the green, the green light. light. Yeah. Yeah, impressive. That seemed like one of those shows that would just be gone in a year. But hey, it's, it's on the AT and T network, so I don't know who's watching. <laughs> someone. Plus, I honestly, it chapter two made Buko bucks, so I wouldn't be surprised if someday they're like, "What if?" chapter 0 or you know we we ended up revisiting some of the other movies that just came out like a uh, pet cemetery spin-off it almost seems like a matter of time before we get even more king so yeah we'll, we'll see what happens with that 96 it's going to balloon yeah, could that... you
2: could you imagine the pressure of being the 100th stephen king adaptation
0: and the <laughs> odds really are really that matters. it would be bad that's the funny thing
1: <laughs> i mean most things you expect bad like, if you make a hundred of something, you can you can expect that a majority of them probably won't turn out great. That's just how things work.
0: That's true. Stephen King has had so many adaptions, it's literally a genre of film. There are
2: actors who kind of owe their careers partially to the works of Stephen King. Like, There oh, yeah. are Stephen King actors out there, Stephen King directors. Before the episode, we were just discussing Mick Garris essentially being the go-to Stephen King director, like. He's the chronicler of King.
1: And just think, how many other authors are out there who would kill to have one good adaptation of their stories? Just, just like, one of them. And Stephen King's out here like, oh, yeah, no problem. I just have, like, Carrie. I've got multiple versions of It. I've got Creepshow. I've got, you name it. He's got, like, 14 different movies that are really excellent or even considered classics.
2: Here's a weird thought. We have almost as many Carrie Whites as we have Punishers.
1: <laughs> yeah, but there hasn't been like a fan film with Ron Perlman in the Carrie universe. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. I'm sorry, I got lost for a second because I was imagining the same Ron Perlman character, like he's in the wheelchair with no legs, and he's <laughs> Carrie's long lost dad who just rolls into the scene randomly for a Carrie <laughs> spinoff.
2: Carrie, oh, Jesus okay. needs us. <laughs>
1: that would make me more interested Holy in Carey. rollers I would, I would totally watch that if they just threw Ron Perlman into a Carrie film. Legless Ron Perlman has to survive a telekinetic fiery onslaught.
0: I mean, I'll be into anything if, A, you throw Ron Perlman into it, B, you throw someone without legs into it, but make them battle supernatural forces. I mean, it's the whole rear window thing. It just works. Sure.
1: Fascinating stuff. Anyways, the best king and the worst king. How did you guys go about your king filtering? How did you you pick good king compared to bad king?
2: I know with me, I kind of took faithfulness out of the equation since specifically with king it seems the closer you follow the books the greater the chance that you completely fuck everything up as we will discuss in the next part of this
1: and uh, honestly i can't say that stanley kubrick's shining is bad and mcderris's shining is good
2: yeah that's uh, the thing it's like no, no it's, it seems like the more you stray the better off you are so i just took uh just which movies are my favorite, which ones I think, like, are the most well-made.
1: Those don't really overlap for me in a lot of cases, I'm noticing as I'm going down my list. But also, Stephen King has written over 60-plus novels. Uh, I'm pretty sure every time you go into a bookstore, if you just stand with your hands open for 20 minutes, a new one will just appear in your your poems. I haven't read a majority of those books. I've read a lot of King, but not, like, 40 of them or anything. So when I I look at some of these films, I'm like, okay, I've seen the movie version of it, but I've never read, for instance, Misery, the actual source novel. So I can't compare how that adapts the material. So luckily, that allows me to disqualify faithfulness in my criteria for good or bad. And thank God for that.
0: And honestly, who has time? Some of us need to, like, eat and sleep.
2: I looked up the audiobook to the stand the other day, and it's like 47 hours.
1: I'm ah, not—it's—and that's probably not even, like, the complete unabridged version.
2: I don't think so. There is like that director's cut that's like the size of two Bibles just back, back to back.
1: <laughs> I Okay. Normally when I go flying, I pick up a book on Kindle and I just read it during the flight. You know, because you end up with like four hours to kill. And I bought the stand for one of those flights and it has lasted me multiple trips. I just keep chugging away it, I'll knock out 300 pages and I feel like I'm never actually getting closer to the end of the novel.
0: And he keeps writing just, more as you're going too.
1: That's, yes, it's, it's like Super Mario 64 when you're running down the hallway towards that one painting of Bowser and it just goes forever. That's what it's like reading The Stand. That's what it was like
2: for King to write The Stand, too. So I feel, <laughs> I, I feel like he'd be happy to know that other people have that sense of dread turning those pages. <laughs> oh, God, how does this end? Ooh, I doesn't... don't know at the time either.
1: <laughs> Mike, did you kind of do it the same way where you're like, eh, if I enjoyed it and it seemed like it wasn't poorly made, I can consider
0: that good? Yeah, pretty much. I I, I I said this before we started, that we could easily add a third episode that's the eh of King, because there's more eh than good, and there's more eh than bad. So, really, it's just, eh, I have my favorites. A lot of stuff that I recognize as, you know, classic films, just great, well-made movies I'm not super into, like... I'm not really that into Carrie or Cujo or Pet Cemetery, the original. Same. And it's not because I think that stuff's bad or anything like that. Just not that into it, so.
2: Yeah, that's why I said earlier that it's important to take in both the objective quality and which ones you have a personal attachment to, like the favorites, because it seems like specifically with Stephen King, most of the super lauded, super auteur stuff, Kind of leaves me cold.
1: How dare you say that about the Green Mile?
0: <sighs> Ooh, that that uh, that makes Jimmy racist. <laughs> Get off my show.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: we got a good point with like a uh, Lambert's Pet Cemetery and Carrie. especially uh, specifically with Carrie. I've always had one big takeaway from Carrie, and I'm curious if you guys feel the same way. That movie is very interestingly made, but not in a way that really benefits the story, I feel.
1: You feel more style over substance?
2: A a little bit. It it feels like De Palma trying to do Phantom of the Paradise on a story that does not need to be Phantom of the Paradise.
0: That might
1: be fair. I I will say this. The first time I saw Carrie, I I was turned off by all those kind of choices. Like, all the flair De Palma threw on that movie, I was like, uh. This looks like something very, very dated and weird. I don't care for it. And having seen the 2013 version of Carrie in theaters uh, and and finally coming back around on the rest of De Palma's work, I can now say I actually really enjoy the 1976 Carrie. Like all the stuff he's doing there is uniquely De Palma. And there I guess some people have tried to imitate it. And some people would say, oh, he's just ripping off Hitchcock. But man, he gives a flavor that you won't really get from anyone else. Yeah. Which I plus uh, the casting of Sissy uh, Spacek on that one is, is, I would say, flat out perfect. Like is she just something unsettling about that girl.
0: My problems with Carrie are, I like, I objectively find it to be a very well made movie, um, exceptionally well made. I don't think there's anything really wrong with the script or uh, the casting's all amazing. Like I look at Carrie as this is a film classic. My problem is is if it kind of didn't have, like, De Palma's name on it, if it didn't have King's name on it, I wouldn't really watch it because I just don't really care that much for the story. Not that it's even a bad story, just not something I would gravitate towards. And that has a lot to do with King's work, which is he's done so much. It's, once again, kind of its own genre, so there's just stuff that's more interesting to an individual than other stuff.
1: Well, one thing off of that is it's got a couple of pieces of like standard King storytelling. One being people with psychic powers. Like he, he loves throwing that in the shining, obviously uh, apparently institution is based all around that. You have Carrie. There's a lot of stories in his books where people just have psychic powers. King is way into that and he's kind of explored it. I would say maybe not better, but more subtly in other words, I mean, that is the linchpin of Carrie. Uh, but there's also in this movie, the other big King thing of, religious zealots, and all the trouble they cause our heroes. Just thinking of, like, The Mist, it's the same deal where someone who is very fanatical just ends up driving you up a tree because you hate the character so much, they're that effective. Carrie's mother is one of those folks who is like, oh, god, I hate this character, and you want to see him punished. Yeah, he, I, he does that in a lot of his works, so if, you know, if you're comparing all the King stuff, is this the best religious fanatic? Uh, is this the most hateworthy, the most interesting, fleshed out? I don't know. Uh, I, I think the one that bothers me the most would definitely be uh, the mist in regards to that. Or maybe Isaac, from Children of the Corn. Isaac you, Isaac's got flair, though. Yeah. Red hair isn't flair. No, that's, no, that's Malachi. Malachi. Uh, uh, you disgust oh, me. I'm going home. How dare is, you say like, I'm a ginger. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, I've opened up a terrible well. Yeah, well of
2: corn. That's what the well you fucking open.
1: Uh, that's an ear of corn. Come on, get your farm facts right. Look, don't corn explain Hold on, hold on, hold on. As long as we're on the topic of children of the corns, I just I just want to read this list because I had to put together all the King adaptions. There's Children of the Corn, 1984, the remake, Children of the Corn, 2009. Then Children of the Corn Two, The Final Sacrifice, Children of the Corn Three, Urban Harvest, Children of the Corn Four, The Gathering, Children of the Corn Five, Fields of Terror, Children of the Corn Six Six Six, Isaac's Return, Children of the Corn Genesis, Children of the Corn Revelation, and. 2018, Children of the Corn, Runaway. Jesus Christ, that's a lot of children out in those corn rows. I had to get that off my chest, because I'm just staring at a giant block of Children of the Corn movies. And, and none of them are good. Many, the original I like. I do enjoy the, ori- the original quite a bit, yes. Now, that's this is the rub. Do you consider Children of the Corn a good King movie?
2: It is tricky knowing where, where the line is, because so many of these movies take so many liberties that you kind of have to ask yourself, like, is this considered an adaptation at this point? Like, you get stuff like The Lawnmower Man or The Running Man, which are basically based off the... Like, The Lawnmower Man is just a, a title, and The Running Man is oh, basically
1: yeah. a brief synopsis. Oh, The Running Man is, yeah, nothing like the original. Same with uh, The Mangler. The Mangler was like a two-page short story that King wrote about a haunted laundry press. And and somehow Toby Hooper's like, okay, don't worry, we can make this into an hour and a half.
2: Oh, God, we could do an entire episode on Stephen King scam movies, which are essentially
1: what those are. Even worse, though, is they decided, okay, one mangler is not enough. We need a mangler two and a mangler three. <laughs> Just imagine that. If you wrote, like, two pages of book and someone went, no, 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 we can make several hours a of movie off of this. Keep handing us million-dollar bills,
0: please. I mean, fuck the sometimes they come back franchise just end up devolving <laughs> into sequels, sort of just they throw that name on there. I think the third one is a fucking war movie or some such shit I think
2: so. <laughs> God speaking of I revisited that for the first time since I like caught it on the sci fi channel when I was like eight or nine. That is very, very solid, like that is ideal nineties Stephen King.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's, they come back for more. It uh, it's it's Tom McLaughlin, which you know,
2: always good. Serious Tom McLaughlin at that, which is
1: interesting. Are you trying to like get us in Tom's good graces so we can get like a Tom bump? Yes. Well,
0: maybe. Um, <laughs> honestly, the only thing really holding it back, uh, maybe a little bit of the TV budget, but not really. Like you can't tell that much. Um is, you wouldn't really know it was a TV movie. Yeah. Um. Is really just the fact the writers of the script aren't particularly good? Like, if you look up there, IMDb, it's like, yeah, these are the people who wrote Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Ah. Um, so it's it's kind of... I love um, the idea that you can just say that and everyone understands. <laughs> it's like shorthand.
1: That's very good communication. Just They wrote Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes, and everyone goes, oh.
0: It's
2: like our version of saying, and his last film credit is Ishtar. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, oh, that makes sense yeah but hey, so it has some failings in the scripting department you can kind of and you can tell but it's very well directed it's pretty it's pretty solid it doesn't go for a huge scope it has some like drop plot lines here and there which is weird and kind of awkward but pretty good like the k and b effects are awesome in it whenever the uh teenagers go like all zombie like yeah oh yeah and it has a nice, like, I don't know, there's something nice about those type of King movies where they have, where, like, the story they're telling is so clear and small scale, even with the supernatural elements, where it has, like, a nice close. That, and it has that Stephen King aesthetic to it. It's almost like a warm blanket. Very much so.
2: And sometimes they come back is a good embodiment of what I think is like one of the biggest themes in King's work and what all of the really good adaptations that are going for that tone have is this through line of longing for a lost childhood and yeah. this hatred of the adult world and all of its responsibilities and its lack of imagination. Like King is very like Dickensian in that sense, weirdly. I think that's it's one of the things that I've always elevated his work above just being scary stories and being, like, flat-out, capital-L literature whenever he's yeah, de- firing off a yeah, soldier.
0: It, it's, uh, it's kind of a combination between that and also the theme of letting go, which is always very strong in, in so much of King's work. And the fact those two themes go really hand-in-hand, hand, both that uh, that longing for childhood and then letting go of the longing and what's from that childhood.
1: My point is less good. I really like how they named the movies. Sometimes they come back again. Instead, sometimes they come back two. That's fun. And sometimes they come back four more. That's great. I like that a lot more than just sometimes they come back a third time.
2: <laughs> I st- I'm still mad that that's not the fourth movie, though. Come
1: on. <laughs> Occasionally they come back around. You never know.
0: Also, Jamie, isn't every time the teenagers show up and, that he- and their heavy metal riff plays <laughs> just the greatest <laughs> thing ever?
2: It's like, oh, God, it's an army of Henry Bowers's.
0: <laughs> I love Stephen King bullies.
2: That's what I love about sometimes they come back. It's Stephen King bullies, the movie. God.
0: This time they're from hell. Stephen King must have had a hell of a
1: childhood because he's just put in so many god-awful bullies.
2: Bullies and people being terrorized by trains.
1: Makes sense. And people saying hoss. <laughs>
0: Is that a bit? Okay, here. I just really want to talk about, about the, the hoss. I have half, a question about the Haas thing for a second. So <laughs> okay. I don't understand because do, pe- do people say Haas in Maine a lot? Because that feels like a, a deep Southern slang from, I don't know, the 30s. I think
2: people said that in Maine in like the mid-50s and it just stuck in
1: Stephen King's head. Uh, okay, so I looked this up quick. Uh, according to the Oxford Dictionary, Hoss, informal dialect, non-standard spelling of horse, used to represent speech. My hoss tossed me off of the creek, and eventually that just morphed into you just call a man a horse, big, strong, or dependable person, usually a man, one who is large like a horse. Southern U.S. slang.
2: I always thought they were just accusing people of being hoss from Bonanza. The more you
0: know. Why would they be accusing?
2: Do you want to be hoss from Bonanza?
0: Well, no, but. Going to back me into a corner.
2: <laughs> well, go on, Mike. Wait, a, Be Mike hoss wait. from Bonanza.
0: <laughs> what a weird curse you've just put
1: on him.
2: <laughs> Is that Mike's thinner? That's Mike's
1: yeah.
0: hoss. He's <laughs> a little more hoss every day. <laughs> uh, it still involves a pie <laughs> at the end, though.
2: But uh, you uh, brought up the dark half. Like, okay, we, we. I know we've just began the episode, but. I feel like we buried the lead enough. We've been talking
1: about this for four days.
2: So I recently watched The Dark Half for the first time. It's always something I've meant to get around to watching, but just uh, never got to it. And oh my god, that is peak King and peak Romero joining forces for something that is completely different from Creepshow. But still has the creep show touches to it. Yeah, in a dead serious movie, it's miraculous. I don't know how this is real.
0: Oh, and this is so like they a fake movie
2: that nerds would conjure up in their heads. <laughs> nobody
1: seems to give a shit about the Dark Half, which blows my mind. It's like the one Romero movie nobody bothers to
0: discuss. That in like Bruiser, and and arguably Dark Half and Bruiser feel like two sides of the same coin.
1: I can see that, but yeah, I really fucking dig the Dark Half. Uh, it's it's. Again, it's one of the King novels that I think a lot of people just kind of ignore. But uh, I think the book is actually pretty good. It's a solid page turner, if nothing else. uh, A couple of the things from the book get dropped in the movie. Like, they they explore the birds quite a bit more inside of the novel. Uh, But I understand they don't want to make this, like, a three-hour thing, half of it talking about birds.
0: Yeah. My my only uh, dislike – the only thing I dislike from the film is just there's – both an attempt to explain things, but it's so haphazardly done, nothing actually makes sense, and you don't actually get anything oh, explained. No. Which I still feel like Romero looked at, went, hmm, I kind of fucked that up. I'm going to be that vague, but even, actually, I'm going to be vaguer when it comes to making Bruiser.
1: <laughs> I'm trying I'm trying to think of uh, how they explain it in the book if they do a better job. And my recollection here is that in, in the book, Someone who's an actual, like, hardcore Stephen King fan is going to call me up and be like, you idiot, just read the Stephen King wiki next time. Uh, But off the top of my head, they were uh, twins in the womb, one twin ate the other kind of thing. But somehow, psychically, the second twin lived on until the boy had a brain surgery as a child, and the tumor containing the soul of the other half was removed and disposed. And somehow, psychically, Ted just kept on feeding it as he was an author And he would occasionally go to that Stark split personality when he needed help writing books. And uh, somehow this psychically feeds the character enough where it's able to manifest its own body over the years and somehow come back to life once that decides to get rid of the alter ego. Even in the book, I think it's a little hairy. I don't don't think it's particularly clear.
2: Well, I think Stark physically exists like the whole time from the surgery onward. He's just some kind of like, quato thing that slowly develops into a
1: man yeah cuz
2: he crawls out really of his long, grave but it's a really long way to go for an extended metaphor
1: yeah yeah <laughs> more than they needed honestly more than they needed although i will say in the film uh, the, the jump scare with the moving tumor at the start of the film oh, was so good
2: that oh, defines really? the movie shit
1: that, the first time i watched the dark half i did not expect that scene all of a sudden you see that weird eyebally fleshy thing moving the brain And I freaked the fuck out. I had to, like, stop the movie, rewind, and watch it, like, three more times. It was so effective. There's something
0: something about how nonchalant the doctors are at the eye moving, too, that adds to, like, the weird, creepy factor of it. Yeah, that was one of the parts that even sticks out in the books. They do the same thing there,
1: and one of the nurses freaks out. The doctor, like, tells the nurse, get your shit together, and then fires her after the surgery, because he doesn't need that kind of person on his staff. (laughs) That was Doctor Strange. (laughs) it It would have
2: been gasping at every head ah you see
1: Mm." (laughs) well in the book too like he calls in other people he's like hey this is some freaky shit no one's ever seen let's document this i
2: remember whenever i was a kid that was the only scene from that movie i had ever seen and like that traumatized me
1: (laughs) oh man that alone is worth the ticket price that is such an effective scared like the concept is is terrifying the visual of it is, is spooky the execution on technical level just makes me jump whenever i see it i love it that is that is some of the best horror i think romero's ever put on film which is saying something oh yeah and as much as like
2: we, we goof on how complicated and ridiculous that premise is i as a metaphor i think it's one of stephen king's strongest and most disturbing ideas the idea of every bad thought or negative emotion you have going into another person who looks just like you until all of that negativity becomes its own separate person that is
1: really horrifying i've seen too with so many other king stories hey the main character is an author with a dark side this time it's just literal but In in a lot of other stories, there's always kind of like the thrown-off suggestion of, oh, I really liked your previous novels that weren't this, you know, paperback junk. They meant something. They were emotional stories. And obviously, I I think you can draw the through line back to Stephen King, who uh, made his name off of things like The Shining, but some of his best work, uh, different short stories like, you know, uh, The Body, which became Stand By Me, or, you know, all the, uh, the, the different things he did that weren't particularly genre And I think he kind of battles that himself, like, hey, this made your name, this made you famous, this got you all of your money, but it doesn't give you the respect that you feel like you deserve as a writer, and that's something that Tad has to go through. You know, he writes all these kind of pulp novels under the alias that ends up being his evil half. So I think it's just a fascinating psychological thing of King working through issues and throwing it out in a novel form.
2: Yes, I think uh, Dark Half was written not that
0: long after he was outed as Bachman, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, that was actually the cause of it. So there's it a was lot here. of stuff King's working out with that page. Because uh, that yeah. had to have been, I mean, just a weird experience if you think back, not even the outing of it, but think about how just, long just he's been. aren't familiar with this situation. I just want to brief it quickly. Oh, yeah. Stephen oh, yeah. King
1: was super popular and decided, hey, what if I went back and wrote some books under an alias, Richard Bachman, just to see if I'd become popular again. If it was really his fame that was carrying him to further fame or if it was his actual skill as a writer. So he started publishing stories under Bachman. Uh, and he didn't get a lot done. I think he had like four short stories, novellas, kind of kind of out there, maybe five. I can't remember the number. And his sales were starting to go up, but it wasn't a conclusive experiment. Uh, and then he got a blackmail notice from someone who had basically pieced all this together. So Stephen King took the extra step to say, nope, fuck it. I have I've always been Bachman. Surprise. Those books were mine. And then all those books became like bestsellers. Uh, and Stephen King was was honestly pissed about it because he didn't get to find out what he his skills were if they were enough to drive his fame every time he tried. Also, being blackmailed by a guy is is I'm sure very very frustrating. So a lot of the events in the dark half, I'm sure, are inspired just by his real life experiences and his kind of dark urges to knock off the guy who's putting him through that hell. Not to mention,
2: I feel like being as Bachman got to work out a lot of stuff he's never really been able to touch since. Like that, w- I feel like that was his little playground where he could be, where he did not feel any pressure to be humanistic in his writing. Yeah, which like even Bachman the darkest King stuff has. Like that's how we got thinner and shit.
1: I'm trying to think. Yeah, what were what were the Bachman books? Um,
2: I thinner and the run, thinner fourth? the Running Man and Regulators. I believe are the three
1: main ones. And there was the Long Walk. Um yeah. uh, and there there was another one about a high school shooter.
2: Uh at, I think you're thinking of at Pupil, but I believe that was in different seasons.
1: Maybe. I I could just sworn I had a, a Richard Bachman collection of uh, several short stories that included The Long Walk and there was one where a kid decides to shoot up his school. But that that's a weird thing to consider too. Stephen King is such a big
2: deal that Richard Bachman is represented multiple times. <laughs> in cinema. Like we have a movie about Richard Bachman and several Richard Bachman adaptations. <laughs> That's how you know you are the biggest author in the world when your alias is a subgenre of <laughs> film.
0: And it does have to um fuck with you in some way. Like while he was being Bachman, he was free from having to be King, which he, you know, at that point he's the biggest writer in the goddamn world and had been a biggest writer in the world for quite a while. And it Writing something as someone else, not having to be Stephen King or live up to whatever Stephen King is to King himself had to have been kind of a weird experience. And I think a lot of that comes out through the dark half where you, you kind of see that Stark is someone he almost prefers to be to a degree. Well, Stark gets results, which is the fun part
1: about you know, Stark. If he wants something, he'll make it happen. yeah. I do want to know what the
2: fuck the plots of those Stark books are.
1: She, the man yeah. with a
2: mustache. And murder.
1: Pretty much revenge. I don't, I don't know what for, because it's into that that character has, like, no attachment to anyone else in the world. But he's mad about something.
0: Also, I think it's, it would be remiss, though, if we're talking about Dark Half. So who the hell honestly ever thought Timothy Hutton would have that kind of performance in him?
2: <laughs> I know, Right. Like, that's kind of the dude you expect to be the lame boyfriend in an 80s romantic comedy. That <laughs> he gets to essentially be a Stephen King bully as a full-grown man in this.
1: Yeah, man. I love The Dark Half. I, I so good. I will stand that one night and day. There, also, there is some Romero that just does not get the attention it deserves, and The Dark Half is at the top of my list for him.
2: Also, I, I just want to say, this movie cannot get enough praise for the twist of Stark being a separate person, actually feeling like a legit plot twist.
1: <laughs> and I let you see the part two of Stark slowly just kind of falling apart as the episode goes on. Yes. They did they did a great job because in the book, they they pay a lot of attention to how slimy and decomposing he is just becoming like unnaturally. So, and his smell, and obviously I don't have smell of vision here. So they got to do it in other ways. And, Oh, it stands out. He looks like his teeth should be falling out and his uh, skin should be
0: slopping off his face. Just all the yellowing, the what appears to be just ink oozing out of him at some points. <laughs>
1: <laughs> ah, it's so good. And who would have guessed, like in the middle of a Stephen King movie, it would just turn into a slasher flick. Like Stark just walks around like a fancier version of Jason, just fucking people up in hotels.
2: Pretty much. Honestly, I think that's the closest King's ever gotten to just writing a slasher story.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what's great about I mean, Romero making it as well, as we get Romero kind of making a slasher movie. Yeah, and it doesn't
2: feel like traditional Romero at all. Like, like you said, it feels – the closest thing in his library, it feels similar to his bruiser, but – there's all this creep show lighting, and <laughs> like, like it's very creep show in places, but very specific places. Yeah. Some of
1: the lighting, it felt like, hey, let's just make this like a cartoony noir. Like we we want this to feel like you know <laughs> Sam Spade writ large and bloodier. The only thing I can think of that it kind of lowers the dark half, and that I'm sure a lot of people get thrown off by, are the special effects at the end. Just the the birds hauling Stark's soul to hell. Not particularly
0: well done. It gets no, a the bit body falling them. apart. But that's about it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's kind of silly too because you end up with like that skeleton left behind for a second before that goes away too. <laughs> it,
0: it,
1: it looks more goofy than like awe inspiring and fantastic. Uh, but that that's really just a limitation of the times. So that movie came out in 1993. It was super primitive CGI and computer imaging that they did all that stuff with, and you know, they did what they could. It wasn't like they had $500 million to make the birds carry the guy's soul to hell. So I, I can I can forgive it. Although it happens at the end of the movie, so I think that sours people on it. The last thing you see is is this really poor effect that has not aged well. And you, can, you forget all of the other stuff that came before it. Humor, boy, everyone would be talking about the dark half every Halloween. That's
2: why you just do a sizzle reel over the credits where you just show the eyeball opening up over and over again.
0: And Michael Rooker That's a- looking off. <laughs> That's my favorite version of Secret Window, where they
1: just end it for some reason with brain tumors. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Speaking of alternate cuts, uh, 1408, I, I watched that yesterday. But it turns out on Blu-ray, I only have the director's cut, which was really? weird because I'm much more familiar with the theatrical cut. So all of a sudden, the ending is very different. Uh, there, There's more family stuff that happens in the movie. It's not bad. It's just oh, what what's happening? I don't remember any of these things.
2: It's very I, I do different. I yeah. prefer the director's cut personally, Dang. but even the actual cut, like God, fourteen oh eight has gotten kind of lost in the shuffle as far as modern Stephen King adaptations go. But God, is that a good, very re rewatchable film?
0: Oh, what happened? Like that was so big when it came out, and it's uh, I mean, you don't expect John Cusack movies to be that well like well liked and reviewed, but that is a but look, good that's a good goddamn for- movie. He's given us 1408, and he's given us Cell. I'll tell you which one
2: I like. It's 1408. Th- and that was the other time he teamed up with Samuel L. Jackson. Uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> definitely the results are good. But Samuel L. Jackson in 1408, he has three scenes in that movie. The first one, he has an extended talk with Cusack's character, where he's trying to convince him not to use the room. And it is some of Jackson's just finest performance, He's not doing his normal thing where he's, you know, the larger-than-life guy who's going to convince you of stuff. He's kind of the – the he's the hotel manager. He just fits into that. He feels like he should actually be running a very fancy hotel. He seems like he's in charge, but he knows he doesn't have any bargaining chips against this guy. He gets that classic line where he leans in and he's like, it's an evil fucking room. And what a well-placed fucking room. Just Just that little F-bomb there totally turns around. And this was – 2007 this came out this was like peak snakes on a plane jackson where everyone expected him to do motherfucking snakes on a motherfucking plane kind of lines
2: i feel like we would not have gotten jackson as nick fury if it weren't for 1408 like establishing the samuel l jackson
1: cameo (laughs) and uh man 1408 the the thing i think is really brilliant about this is the movie takes its time getting to the room and and a lot of times in a haunted house movie. Yeah, so that's just boring. They didn't have the budget to show the scary stuff, so they dragged their feet. Not here. 1408 is really taking its time because they want to build up the reputation of the room. They want you to feel scared of this place before you even go in and start wondering what's going to happen. They really ratchet up the tension in like a heart of darkness kind of way where you just keep describing what they're after. Like the long scene with Samuel L. Jackson? That is brilliant. It's like five minutes of just hearing about all the awful things that have happened in there, seeing pictures of people with slit throats. Even when he's like riding the elevator up to the room, he mentions the, the maid who went in there for five minutes by herself and had her eyes gouged out. It's terrifying. When he finally steps into 1408, you just think, what are we in for? This has to be the worst hotel room ever. It's, it's so good. It really just piles on top of you, and you have this horrible reputation then he gets to the room, and it seems pretty normal for, like, the next five minutes, which is a wonderful little bit of subversion. Until and so it quickly ratchets up from there. Well, that's what I love
2: is you get that brief respite, and then things just start going apeshit as soon as things start rolling. It's weird. Structurally, it's very similar to Rose Red, where there's all of that build up, then a brief moment to get your bearings, and then things go to crazy town. A lot more efficient since it's not a five-hour miniseries.
1: Exactly. And they kind of tricky with this one, too. The first scare we get is, Cusack uh, hears a noise, runs to another room, and then when he turns around, he notices there are two chocolates on his pillow that weren't there before. Which is, that's that's like a classic good haunted house gag, but it's not one you'd really expect to send shivers down your spine. It's like a, ah, okay, spooky, no effects here, but whatever. And from there, it quickly ratchets to stuff like he steps out of the hotel room on the windowsill and all of a sudden all the other windows are gone or there's a figment of his imagination that's trying to murder him with a hammer or he can hear voices or the hotel clock is resetting itself and telling him horrible portents of doom. It tricks you into thinking it's going to be a lot of sleight of hand scares and then throws that away about five minutes later and says, nah, fuck you, we're just going to ratchet this up to 100 real quick here.
0: I, I've i rarely seen a movie that manages through series of effects to really fuck with an audience's head. Like the psych out where he spends an extended period of time thinking he's just back in his regular life,
1: like an hour into the movie. Like everyone knows in the audience it's not done yet, but it looks like he's just like collecting his mail and going through life normally again before it turns out that was another trick by the room.
0: But it's well, like, like it it goes on so long and there's so there's so much mundane shit in the sequence that you start just like okay he's clearly out of the room now and it's gonna like come back around in some other way so the reveal like when they just start tearing the fucking walls apart in the post office your mind's fucked with so hard because it's been like 20 goddamn
1: minutes it's a long scene the movie just restarts and you're saying they're like oh okay this must just be a weird like two-act structure where he goes to the hotel the second time like he forgot his keys he has to go back
2: (laughs) and and they structure it like it's a stephen king epilogue because at this point they know what you expect from a stephen king movie like it's it's such a great fucking reversal of expectations and they managed to do that without pissing the audience off that's the
1: impressive thing so, real question here. Which ending do you guys prefer for 1408? Do you uh, like the the happy-go-lucky ending where Cusack gets out? Uh, or the one where he's burned alive? And possibly just a ghost for all eternity.
2: Uh, honestly, I prefer the director's cut. I'm a bit biased because that was the very first version I watched. But I kind of feel like it tells a more complete story. Like, I like... I just... Despite the fact that the ending is Cusack just conceivably living the experience in the hotel room over and over and over again. There's something uh, very much like a book being closed whenever you just see him in the ru- the ruins of the room with his daughter and you know that his pain is going to go on, but the room is dead and his sacrifice ultimately meant something. Uh, you get a little bit of that with the uh, theatrical ending, but... Uh... I kind of like the finality of
1: that. See, I'm I'm kind of on the opposite end. Since I saw the theatrical cut in theaters, that's the version of me that seems like it should be canon. Even if it does feel a little chintzy that Cusack survives, the giant fireball that should have immolated him. But I would that's say it's a little chintzy. The film, eh, the film feels like it's leading up to him having learned a lesson through this this whole experience. Like he just leaves his wife in the meat of the story, and then he gets to come back, and now he can make amends, he can really fix that situation. He can move on from the death of his daughter, but in, instead, with the director's guys, like, nah, you don't get any of that. He's just dead. Like he managed to destroy the room, but at great personal cost.
0: So is it's have, a tragic
1: ending. Yeah, both have merit.
0: Yeah, both have merits. I very like a slight edge out. I prefer the theatrical ending as well. It it feels like the movie kind of earned a like happier ending at that point. But I do agree with Jamie in that I like the the uh, the haunting quality of the ending of the director's cuts, um, you know, I, I think Cusack, I think his arc goes into like kind of different, diverging, alternate realities between the two endings, where they're they're very similar but end up in like two different voids. And for me, I the that tape recorder kind of works as a nice button. Because of where he started as the uh kind of the skeptic character, so I think it adds a little bit more to it than that.
1: you stole my story that was that was gonna be my line. I was gonna follow up with <laughs> the tape recorder is a really amazing ending it's It's very unsettling, just the idea of hey, you can actually hear a ghost there's there's actual evidence of something supernatural on tape.
2: Yeah, I never really thought of it that way, but yeah, that is kind of a a weird closure to like him being a bullshit paranormal investigator. like at, at the very last moment, he does have evidence of the supernatural.
1: And I love it too, because it's such a cheap, easy scare. Like you, you don't actually have to have any sort of special effect. It's, hey, we recorded two people having a conversation, but with the context of the story, if you buy into the narrative you're being told, it's spooky as hell. I love it. I, I honestly love how low-key scary that ending is of there being like a little ghost girl on the tape recorder.
0: Yeah. After all the mind bending stuff, I, I like ending on something so small scale, just like a little blip. Definitely spooky. Yeah. That does make that
2: ending of 1408 original in the Stephen King canon. Not only did everyone survive, but they actually have proof that something happened.
0: <laughs> and there was that ending. I with Two faces. It's not really good proof.
1: No one would listen to that recorder and be like, yeah, you, you interviewed a little girl. How do you prove that's a ghost girl? Well,
0: and then you try to explain that it's your room, dead okay. daughter.
1: <laughs> I'm just saying, if you took that to the newspapers, it would be like, you clearly just recorded a woman off the street. This this is not
0: evidence. Please leave, sir. No, trust me. The toilet paper kept changing. <laughs> I had to burn the room down. It was evil. I'm taking this to the guys
1: at MUFON, will believe me. On the same level of Stephen King's, hey, this thing is just evil, Christine. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Christine because I think everyone's on the same page about this just being a really good movie. But boy, I'd also like to do commentary for Christine one day.
2: Oh, that's totally, that's going to happen.
1: The effects are fantastic. The performances are great. Even somehow Stephen King and Carpenter managed to take a car, a very handsome car, and make it scary. How? How the fuck do you make a, a sp- like a 50s car scary? Handsome I car. I would never want to take on that challenge. It's a handsome car.
2: <laughs> oh, it's amazing. You watch, Christine, now. The effect of that car fixing itself is just as creepy as it was the day it premiered. Yes. That has What's... not aged one iota.
1: It has that classic carpenter sting before
0: it starts repairing itself. Like, it has always flash on to the- Still, hands down, my Beautiful. favorite Carpenter score. It's a really good score, and it's tall order, and it's it's very much like the dark half, um, where it's such a straightforward allegory. It's just a you know just a kid getting his first car and a taste of freedom, and everything kind of going to shit because of it. Like it's so simple, and that's one of the reasons it works. There's so much to latch onto between King's text and then Carpenter adapting it. It's, yeah. it's right for Carpenter.
1: Before Christine, this poor kid was just getting bullied, and then his new identity could be car kid, and suddenly he, they can't touch him. The car kills him. It's just it's very empowering, but also a really abusive relationship. Christine,
2: it's one of those great King ideas that manages to hit everyone where they live because I don't think there's a single person at at least in America who has not met that one dude. Who got a new car and cared about it way, way, way too much.
1: We've all met that one man who fell in love with his car and then got his penis stuck in the tailpipe. It's just a <laughs> universal experience.
0: It was me, Mike. That's not even my it. car. I'm just, just the checking
2: car. the mail.
1: I'm just imagine the car is playing poppy rock music as Mike is trying to fuck his car. <laughs>
2: You can't knock him, but you can't. Come in.
1: Get out of my dreams and into my car. Help! Help! Help.
2: Uh, We were talking before uh, recording. For whatever reason, it's really hard to hold in your memory that that is a Stephen King movie directed by John Carpenter. Like, I can always remember that it's one or the other. For some reason, I always want to credit it to Frank Darabont.
0: I mean, Darabont did give us some king action, so it's not a bad guess. It does feel like Blob-era Darabont in some way.
2: Yeah, it's it's kind of an outlier in Carpenter's career, tone-wise. Like, that, th- this is his big high school movie. Like, Halloween had very surprisingly little teenage antics to be a slasher versus babysitter movie. So it's it's really <laughs> surreal seeing all of the carpenter tropes in a Stephen King Maine high school setting.
1: Well, the girls in Halloween don't spend all that much time together. They all kind of
0: find different reasons to be
1: off on their own so they can
0: get stalked.
2: It's way more of a movie about the suburbs than it ever is about high school.
0: Yeah, yeah Christine actually involves high school politics. And football. It's got the worst. Uh Since we mentioned Durban, I just want to mention what
1: a whiplash just going between like Shawshank and The Mist.
2: Yeah, The Mist is another movie like 1408 that was the definitive King movie whenever it came out. And it's just kind of fallen by the wayside of people's memory.
1: I think, uh, oh, I had that listed. I think it was a 2007 flick. I could be wrong on that one. Uh, Yeah, that one... I think it might have lost some people by having the most gut punch of an ending ever imagined for a King movie. Yeah. Like, Oh, that one is just a brutal, brutal ending. But there is so much of the mist that I don't even like to watch. Like the spider monsters, terrifying beyond belief Uh to me. I do not like them one bit. There is some really good monster action happening in the mist. And I like the paranoia of people being trapped in one location together. You know, that's a classic you know, boiler pot kind of setting. It it just, all of it works very well, and they allow themselves to do a lot of King staples. I think if you had to pick one movie to show someone to explain to them what Stephen King is about, The Mist would not be a bad choice. It's crazy,
2: because there's nothing that over the top about The Mist, yet it has virtually every single Stephen King trope happening all at once. Like, just add in an autistic person with psychic powers, and... It's King, the
0: movie.
1: <laughs> that would that,
0: would, that would about cover it, yeah, if we just had that. Hey, we don't know. That could be in there. You I mean, what, chose okay, not I might to use it might have been in the series nobody watched.
1: One other thing I would like to throw out there is King really loves the idea of emotional discharge from people basically serving as a poltergeist. Like, if you look at The Shining, you know, the hotel basically just has people coming in and leaving their emotional baggage behind until it creates this really toxic, emotionally evil, haunting environment. And that's basically the same fourteen o eight and Christine, in my mind, like emotions are just deposited, and they they kind of supercharge psychic mumbo jumbo into making evil things happen, yeah, it's so we can have that in the supermarket in the mist. you got a bunch of pissed off people in there. Why not? <laughs> Push it all the way,
2: yeah, it's that trope of King like again, like we talked about that with the dark half, this horrible idea of all of the bad stuff in your head that you think is safe because it's only in your head, seeping out into the real world and causing trouble, which I imagine was something that was very much on his mind whenever he was dealing with all of his demons, like pretty much from the 70s till the late 80s. And uh, But before we leave The Mist, one thing that I feel like that movie never gets enough credit for that Darabont is a fucking genius for, the casting of Thomas Jane
1: oh yeah that works great yeah
2: and this this was punisher era thomas jane when he was building up to like being the next big action dude and in this movie he cannot do anything right he is the most ineffective (laughs) big tough guy you've ever seen you keep expecting him to go schwarzenegger on those monsters and nothing he does works he's he spends a lot of the movie just fumbling around on the floor watching people die around him. So yeah. he's powerless to save. Like I've never seen like right up until the very end, I've never seen a horror movie convey powerlessness
1: as effectively as the mist does. Yeah, I mean in the end, the guy totally fails at pretty much every single thing he wants to do. Like he doesn't he doesn't save any of his neighbors or his new friends or his new love interest or
0: his old love interest or his son. The guy just fucks it all up. You also have, have, like, Sam Witwer in there as, like, the big, you know, big burly marine guy who is unable to do anything and save anybody. It's a very big running theme in The Mist is, like, the powerlessness of actual brawn in any way.
2: And, again, like, with the ending, like, the most fucking hardcore, like, we're going out on our own terms decision ends up being the worst fucking thing they could possibly do.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Whoops. That was David so good Toby to Jones. Jones. What a what a bummer. Just imagine how many people went on date nights than this and just ended being <laughs> like, nope, <I> can't make <laughs> out anymore. I'm too sad. God, you talk
2: about uh the recent Pet Cemetery being a bummer in the parking lot. Could you imagine just the children crying <laughs> in the <laughs> theater? Like watch catching that on home video is a night ruiner. I can't imagine a theatrical experience with that.
1: One thing though, the Pet Cemetery uh, remake from 2019, at least that one ends on that really, really catchy cover of the Ramones Pet Cemetery song. So you could trick yourself into thinking, like, no, it's okay, I'm back to making out.
2: I would love if there was a fucking Mist ballad.
1: (laughs) Starcrawler, get in here. We need a happy song about killing (laughs) monsters in the mist.
2: We gotta get out of the supermarket.
1: Really, that's, yeah. that should be the compromise they should have gone for. You get a very somber, sad ending just reflecting on man's uselessness against the forces of nature and the cosmic, followed by some great riffs.
0: I would have liked that more than the like building operatic music. What? I'm sorry, I don't like the musical choice whenever he falls to his knees. That's, it's a little that's on the, the one nose. thing that gets you. It's a, little <laughs> yeah, just, that's... it's a little on the nose. So
1: we have some subtle music about murdering your child in self-defense.
0: Yeah, that's...
2: I love the ending of The Mist very much. There's a little bit, like you said, with the operatic music and how quickly that all pays, uh, plays out. I kind of wish they would have uh, fixed in the editing room. Like, just another, like, five seconds to get the timing right.
1: Yeah. Uh, m- meme idea. Someone take the ending of The Mist and
0: replace the music with the Curb Your Enthusiasm
1: closing credits. See, I I'm thought sure you were gonna,
0: gonna go. That. I thought you were gonna go with Queen's Flash Gordon score. Uh, White. Yeah. Out.
2: <laughs> I like that. Can we make that?
1: <laughs> no, you already put it. You put it. You put it on the podcast. People are gonna know about that. They're they're gonna take that juicy idea. All the more reason for us to make it. No, I'm telling you, the internet's already consumed this one. It's out there.
0: That is a total 80s Flash Gordon move, though, like, coming up to Thomas Jane right after he's murdered all these people and his son. (laughs) And then just being like, I saved everybody.
2: Yeah!
0: (laughs) I'm Flash! And just, like, signing his, like, hand or something. Just
2: a freeze frame on Thomas Jane weeping
1: as the credits roll. (laughs) This would also work for the ending of The Dead Zone going to put that out there. Walken has just been shot to death. He realizes he saved the world. And then, boom, in comes Queen.
2: God, I that completely slipped my mind. we got to talk a little bit about Dead Zone. That yeah. David Cronenberg, Stephen King movie. Got the, amount of, the amount of fucking top-tier genre directors who have done King it is fucking amazing. Like, you're not a, a true horror director until you've done at least one adaptation. <laughs>
1: And And it's it's Cronenberg as hell, too, which is impressive. That was amazing, because I was about to say, it doesn't even feel that Cronenberg.
0: Yeah, I disagree. I would say Like, body horror aside, like, I just, that is dripping. Like, there's something about the way Cronenberg directs where everything just kind of feels gross. Oh, yeah. Even the, the gross, I got a very cold feeling.
1: Like, it's a very lonely kind of film, if that makes sense.
0: Oh Cronenberg directs everything, particularly in Dead Zone. Like he's filming a morgue,
1: <laughs> very
2: much. So. Oh, those fucking doctor scenes where like he's describing the headaches. Like it's like he's in some kind of underground hospital that's going to wheel him away <laughs> <Yes>. for experiments, <laughs> and it's just he's just in a doctor's
1: office. I would say. I mean, obviously the the. Uh the scissor suicide is very Cronenberg. <laughs> I don't think anyone in the world would argue otherwise, because I think about no that all one the else time. in the world would set up a suicide scene like that. <laughs> Which, honestly, boy, how do you... That, that's going to stick with you. Like, just, just the way he practices it, and he comes down, he
0: places his face on the scissors before he leans back, the camera cuts. in uh, the sound design of it. Like, just all the squeaking rubber and all that.
2: <laughs> to me, the Dead Zone... Is defined by that scene and Michael Sheen stomping a puppy.
0: <laughs> and I
1: mean, honestly, everyone's made this point already, so it's just beating a dead horse. But what a timely film, one that just rolled back around politically.
0: <laughs> yeah. Always comes back around, unfortunately. You know what really uh, wins uh, Dead Zone over for me, though, is when Walken hosted SNL and did his Dead Zone skit. <laughs>
2: Weirdly, I, I feel like that's more iconic than the movie at this point.
0: Oh, I think about, I occasionally get that skit confused with the movie, which is weird. It's the same performance. It is. It gives it us all. It's a good skit. We haven't, uh, <clears throat> I got to
1: touch on this one. Mercy, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, frog in my throat. Misery. Just watched that the other day for the first time in a few years, and it works so well. It's It's one of the Oddball King stories where there's nothing supernatural happening at all but still terrifying because it's one of those, we've all known someone who seems a little off kilter and you have to wonder what they would do to you if they had total power, if your legs were broken you couldn't get away. God, speaking of being
2: timely, misery might be the most timely statement on the nature of fandom ever (laughs) made. That is the fucking modern creator-fan relationship as a horror movie.
1: (laughs) It's... uh, It's very distressing. Hey, look, I I already wrote the book. I can't unwrite it. I'm sorry you're sad about my decision, but that's just how it is. You can't undo it. And (laughs) Kathy Bates just going, it's not good enough. You have to write a new novel and bring her back and retcon it. Oh, God, Uh, the the second people
2: were threatening to class action sue Bioware because they didn't like the ending of Mass Effect 3. Like The thing was, oh, the the spirit of Annie Wilkes is alive and well in the 21st (laughs) century.
1: And uh, one of the best pieces of on-screen violence ever done, that ankle break with the sledgehammer. (sighs) Oh, that'll make you feel sick. So well done. So iconic. That's pretty much the only thing people remember from that movie is just that leg splitting, but man. Oh, the rest of the film is fantastic. There's a lot of really tense moments. Kind of going back to what we said before about rear window. This is this is, you know, a guy trapped in a wheelchair who has to fight just to move between rooms. There's a lot of tension in that scenario, and boy, do they milk every last second of it.
2: And I love how it's part of the amazing trilogy of killer Kathy Bates movies got the- <laughs> like that, Fried Green Tomatoes, and Dolores Claiborne, which I watched uh, for the first time this weekend. That is really, really good.
0: Oh, I have never actually seen that one. I have not seen it yet, unfortunately, either. You can
2: barely find it anywhere. It was a miracle I found it in a $5 bin last week. But, yeah, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's just a small-town murder mystery. It's not even really a murder mystery. Like, that's just the pretext for getting the characters together. And it's mostly just Jennifer, Jason Lee, and Kathy Bates talking about their past.
1: But The original still, sideways. <laughs> but still, with
2: all these little king-isms, with the dialogue... And the situations, and it shot very, very interestingly. Like, despite the fact that it's just a character drama with some tense moments, there are all these fascinating transition effects. Like, Kathy Bates turns around, and the background is 40 years in the past, but like, completely superimposed with a green screen. It she turns around again and suddenly it's Kathy Bates out of the old age makeup, like really impressive visual stuff from Taylor Hackford. Like the only thing I can say negative about it is it's inexplicably scored like it's a horror film because <laughs> I guess <laughs> the studio just thought, oh Stephen King. So there's it's... a lot of awkward moments where Kathy Bates is being abused by her husband and the score is going bum 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 <laughs> like Godzilla showed up. Oh man. But other than that, a very solid uh, '90s low-key thriller, perfect example of the '90s king aesthetic.
1: I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm still stuck thinking about how weird it is when a score is just borrowed from a different movie. Like I watched Lady Hawk for the first time not too long ago, and that score it, it was flown in and dropped off by accident. There, there's no way that score was designed for that movie. I, I refuse to believe that it was done on purpose that way.
0: Here's a question. Was was Netflix very briefly planning to do a remake of Dolores Claiborne, and then like something happened with rights, and they just never got around to it? Because it felt like they were just building to Dolores Claiborne <laughs> with their two. Um, there are two original movies, I which are essentially just Dolores which is essentially like one's essentially a prequel and one just kind of references it and also kind of acts like a side story to it. It's really weird. I'm
2: convinced that the Dolores Claiborne reference and Gerald's game is there just because it was that important to Mike Flanagan. (laughs) Like, I feel like in his head, because the the eclipse scene is feels so similar to what's in the Hackford movie, I feel like in Flanagan's head, his movie links up to specifically that version and not specifically the book or a hypothetical remake. And it's Flanagan, so no, that would actually be very important.
0: Yeah, it's Flanagan. I could very easily see that. I didn't mention it, though. It was
1: really weird that they gave us Gerald's Game and uh, uh, what was the other one, 1922? yeah. And then the original King movies on Netflix just kind of dried up. If yeah, anything what happened like at the time, they would want that. Like they'd just be producing every King
0: story they could. Yeah, I don't I, – I'm very confused because they seem to have some kind of deal in place and then poof. To be fair, over the past like two or three
2: years, Netflix has done a lot of, oh, I thought you were – oh, okay, we're doing this now.
0: Yeah, I guess I have no idea what the viewership is. Maybe Maybe people just didn't tune into those. People definitely slept on 1922. Gerald's game seemed to do pretty good, I remember, when it first came out.
1: Yeah,
0: that one got a lot of uh, coverage. I mean, essentially, it's what got us uh, Haunting of Hill House.
1: Yeah. It was what got him Doctor Sleep. That,
0: too, yeah. He's yeah, I...
1: forced to only direct Stephen King or Haunted House stories for the rest of his days now. Just... His own personal curse. <laughs>
2: Between Gerald's Game and Haunting of Hill House, which wasn't an adaptation but felt very much, like, of the Stephen King aesthetic, like, I feel no director has quite matched the, uh, the feel of a Stephen King book quite like Mike Flanagan has. Like, I think he may, like, unless he majorly fucks up his career or just never directs a King movie again, I could see him going
1: down as the definitive King director. I can't. Do you think he's going to come back for more King? I mean, at this point, he's already done three, so what's to stop him? But at a certain point, you have to imagine he's like, I, I've done enough, guys. I can I can move on to other things, can't I?
0: If, if he pulls off Dr. Sleep, I could see him just dropping the mic on doing more King. Because that's so hard to do. <laughs> Both adapting that book, and I love the book. And also sequelizing Kubrick's The Shining at the same time?
2: It was hilarious listening back to our Shining commentary yesterday and listening to us talk about that crazy idea of doing a Doctor Sleep movie that's a sequel to Kubrick's The Shining. That thing that would never happen.
0: <laughs> It'll never Which work, is, you fools. We, we just shouldn't say things sometimes. No, we, can, <laughs> we made this happen. The universe is out to make sure everyone knows we're dummies. It's true. So, Why well, haven't hasn't there been a goddamn found footage mummy movie? But I digress. Uh, so, uh, Mike,
2: you're the you're the only one of us who's actually seen 1922. You said that it was really oh, I... good,
0: didn't you? Go, hold on. Cody's about to about to burst.
1: <sighs> no, I said I've seen it too. Oh, you have? Yeah, I've got Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's motherfucker. <free. laughs> you can <eat> it, just <laughs> yeah, pop it, it so on. Aggressive. They don't charge. They don't charge you extra for
0: 1922. You can just watch it. I have a feeling I, I don't want to share my opinion, but I just wanted to say I saw it. I, um, yeah, I finally, uh, after sleeping on 1922, I'd been excited for it when it came out, but then, like a lot of things that come out on streaming services, you just forget. I'll so, throw it on the pile. Yeah, so I, I finally went back and watched it for this, and I loved it, like a lot. Like, it's really stuck with me since, uh, since I checked it out. Like, a, a lot more than I expected, because as I was watching, I was going like, oh, this is really good, but it's... It's a little plodding, which I still, which I would still say, it's a little slow, maybe a little bit over morose, but damn, it's it's really like crept up in the in the back of my brain. I, I it's such a amazing like Thomas Jane performance too. Like maybe my favorite of of any of his roles. Like he really fucking gives it his all, and it's such an amazing a more Jane come back. Yeah, especially Stephen King Jane. I, I think that's kind of the trick with
1: nineteen twenty two. It's not truly a horror film at all. And I, I think I went in with that expectation that it was going to be yeah. like some ghost story. And it's not – there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, some of King's Best Stuff really isn't that supernatural. And this one, I mean, it does have hints of the supernatural if you want to view it that way. But I really went in thinking like, oh, this is going to be a scary movie in 1922. And it's not. It's, it's just like, boy, times is tough. So that was probably <laughs> my with it. I would probably appreciate it much more if I went in with the attitude of knowing what the fuck I was about to watch.
0: Yeah, I, I went in, I ended up being surprised by the maybe supernatural stuff that's present in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't expect any of that. So I kind of went in expecting more of like uh, a king kind of crime story. You know, just kind of like a simple descendant, uh you know, madness or whatever kind of thing. So with that in mind, I wasn't expecting supernatural stuff. So when the... Mind fuckery stuff started up. That was kind of more just icing on the cake for me, more than anything else. I was not bamboozled. Yeah, Yeah, I always think the
2: very best King stuff is the stuff where all of these supernatural and hardcore horror elements are just out of reach. Like you have that unease that something isn't right, but it's never front and center. I don't
1: know. 1922 could have used more haunted cars. The work for Christine. Why not 1922? Just a jalopy yeah. coming after Thomas Jane. Oh! oh, look out, it's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and it's eating
0: <laughs> children. I could have used more rats. <laughs> I mean, who can't? It's always good to have rats around. Thomas Jane battling a rat was kind of amazing.
2: <laughs> Just a one-scene remake of Graveyard Shift. <laughs> but speaking of King stuff that...
1: He is kind of forgotten and lost in the shuffle. To interrupt you, yeah. I really wish I had thought of that segue earlier. Speaking of King stuff, and then just jump to a different Stephen King movie. That been <laughs> perfect. That would have been – but it would make easy, editing so easy for Mike. You could just plug in any section you wanted. Speaking
0: I'll just throw King it in stuff, there as a wild line.
1: Speaking of King stuff, how about graveyard shift? Sorry. Anyway. Speaking of Maine. Silver Bullets. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, by the way, probably, we should mention Silver Bullet, definitely. Is that a, a – a, I feel like that's a bad movie I just enjoy. I don't know. I I would say Silver like Silver Bullet's not great. I would say maybe it falls maybe a little bit in the eh king category, but it's above it. It's a little above it.
1: it. Let's stick after the bad king episode just so I can reread the chapter on Don Cascarelli's book about being involved in Silver Bullet. (laughs) It is an amazing story. (laughs)
2: But uh, this week, I rewatched for the first time since it aired the 2002 Brian Fuller Carey TV movie.
1: <laughs> that thing I always forget exists until someone reminds me. I think I'm
2: the only fan on Earth that movie has. Like, it's not well shot at all. The special effects are terrible. It's directed like it's a lifetime original movie. Fuller was very, very upset with the lack of care they took with his script. But it has a pretty good cast, as Angela Batiste says, Carrie White, in a very, very good performance. Uh, A lot of people that would later go on to be famous, like Emily DeRaven from
1: Lost. So it's the opposite of the Carrie curse? Or the the, the poltergeist curse? Well, if you count being stuck in Hawaii for five years. A fate worse than death.
2: Patricia Clarkson as Carrie's mom, being maximum crazy Patricia Clarkson, and Catherine Isabel, who is the only person in that movie who knows that she's in a Brian Fuller movie. So she's like the only one doing a comedic performance. It's like she stepped out of Pushing Daisies. It's kind of awesome. (laughs) And uh, because it's a Fuller script, there's a lot of heavy queer subtext to it, like, Carrie's powers first mani- manifest the first time she sees another girl naked. Whenever she gets her period in the shower, it's implied that she's masturbating. Like a lot of small things like that, because obviously it's 2002 and NBC wouldn't let Fuller go full Fuller with it. <laughs> Just say, good heavens, on television no less. <laughs> uh, I, like, I actually prefer Fuller's version of Carrie and the world she inhabited. Habits yeah, a lot more than what's in the De Palma version. Like Fuller, despite loving that version, always took issue with what a one note vil- uh, victim Carrie was. So his version is very three dimensional. Like most of the movie is Carrie arguing with her mother. I, as soon as she has her period and comes home, she's immediately screaming at her mother for not telling her what periods were. Like she's not afraid of her at all. So you see a lot more of Carrie being smart and fighting back uh, in the small instances where she finds the courage to do so. Her faith is portrayed a lot differently. Like, it's made clear that Carrie is terrified of her mother's version of religion, but does have, like, a legitimate, unshakable faith in God, which is another interesting wrinkle. And she survives at the end.
1: Well, this the, supposed to be, like, a backdoor pilot or something for
2: more Carrie, right? Yeah, that's what I discovered in my research, and suddenly everything that's off about this movie made sense to me. Like, oh, that's why it's structured this way. It's just supposed to be the Cliff Notes version of the book so that Fuller could then do a Carrie White series where Carrie and Sue would try to redeem themselves for what happened on prom night by... Traveling across America, finding other teenage girls who shine and ferrying them off to safety while being pursued by Jasmine Guy, who was in the TV movie, but edited out, who <laughs> would have been a sinister paranormal investigator, always on Carrie White's heels like it's the Incredible Hulk. Like, I'm amazed that this couldn't happen. Like, Could you imagine... 2000s, like right before Wonderfalls, as Brian Fuller doing a Carrie White series on NBC. And the only reason it didn't happen was because NBC was just fucking with MGM the entire time. MGM <laughs> wanted a series. MBC wanted a TV movie. So they just lied to MGM and said it was a backdoor pilot and Fuller didn't realize until they were done shooting it.
0: Good
1: lord. It seems like a bad thing to not tell the person making the footage.
2: Yeah, I feel like this is the origin of Brian Fuller. Like, this is where the bad blood began. Because <laughs> right after this, he gets Wonder Falls, canceled immediately. Gets... The, real,
1: the real secret here is Stephen King was behind it all. He's like, fuck, that's a great idea. I wonder if I can make Doctor Sleep that. Just go around collecting shiners.
0: Yeah, that is pretty much Collect just Doctor Sleep. <laughs> I just want to know... <laughs> Who the fuck was like? You know what we need? A carry TV show.
2: MGM wanted to license out the IP, but wanted a constant return on their investment. Apparently,
1: it uh, could work. I mean, why not? They they dragged Psycho, Psycho out, Psycho out like five seasons, yeah. and we've got three. Sure, give us weird, spooky I mean, that horror makes stuff. more
0: sense. A Firestarter makes more sense as a series. <laughs>
1: I mean, considering Carrie is famous because at the
0: end she dies, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to jump off and be like, no, no, no. It's, we make a, it's a weird – like, of all the King well, stories, that's the weird one.
2: What's weird is you'd think Carrie living was because of the pilot thing. No, that was Fuller's idea. Originally – like, I think what was proposed was Carrie would die and then a new teenager would inherit her powers <laughs> and grapple with the legacy of Carrie and – or was like, no, no, no. If you're going to do this, we'll make her a detective or something. No, shut up.
1: They should have just followed the exact course of the Jaws films. Like in in Carrie 2, there's just a different Carrie that wanders into town, causing similar problems. The third one, she wanders into SeaWorld and causes a lot of problems, and she also has a baby. (laughs) Uh, The fourth one, she just just follows uh, the survivors from the high school down to uh, a vacation in Jamaica. It's revenge. I mean, I'm not against it. Carrie goes Hawaiian. They should do that with all of Stephen King's shows. Like, could you imagine Christine, if there's a part four where the car is just out for revenge and it has to be, like, on a tropical island? Isn't that just rubber? (laughs) True. That is very true, Mike. Christine 3D, and it's just Christine driving through Universal Studios stalking
0: people.
2: (laughs) That's horrifying. (laughs) It's a tram now.
0: I kind of want to see this. This sounds awesome. (laughs) This sounds like weirdly like a Disney Channel original movie from like 1997.
2: It really does. How did they never do like a haunted Disney set?
0: (laughs) The perfect alibi.
1: Are you a creepy car that's stalking someone in the middle of a theme park? Just park. People think you're part of the displays.
2: (laughs) But uh, yeah, I'm still 90% sure this is why we got the Dead Zone series. Is somebody heard that and went, Okay, let's do that, but not with the weirdest possible character we (laughs) can do this. But, yeah, I recommend uh, checking it out. Like I said, it's very flawed, but just as an artifact of where Fuller's career and his sensibilities of, like, rewriting and tweaking things began. If somebody would take that script and the direction style of De Palma's carry, I think you might have, like, the ultimate version of that story.
1: (laughs) It's weird because you didn't mention anything about including elements from the 2013 Carrie.
2: Oh yeah, that thing. <laughs> I should say Fuller had Carrie fuck up the town before that movie. He gets credit for being the first person to bring that from the book. I feel like I learned a lot today about Carrie.
0: Thought, oh, we talked learned, a lot about Carrie it. randomly. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's where it all began.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess that's. I guess that makes it appropriate. So there we go. We have mentioned every
1: good Stephen King thing that has ever been created in excruciating detail. We've we've covered it all. There could be no other facts or thoughts ever put out there.
2: We're lighting fire to this podcast as soon as as it's over.
0: (laughs) You know, it's not my fault that your goddamn copy of the Night Flyer hasn't appeared yet.
1: (laughs) If we had just waited possibly eight more days, possibly three... (laughs) We de- it, there's a range here of September 15th to the 20th. I don't know where it's going to land, but I'll watch it right away. It's on YouTube, for Christ's sake. I I obey the law, Mike. I am a good <laughs> citizen.
2: If it's on YouTube, it's legal.
0: <laughs> I don't think anybody owns the rights to the Night Flyer. Someone has I don't to. think King owns the rights to the Night Flyer. I, think I don't he think just... King remembers he wrote the
2: Night Flyer. It was in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, so that's very possible.
1: You guys you guys are laughing now, but I bet tomorrow Scream Factor's is going to be like, here's a $40 special edition of Night Flyers extended cut. It's got commentaries from all the dead cast members. It's, you know, <laughs> love it.
0: <laughs> Jesus just Christ.
1: A, just a little side note that says,
2: we did this for you, Mike.
0: I would gladly pay that price tag. Double if they just ended up funding the sequel that was proposed that then went unmade.
2: There was gonna be a sequel to the Night Flyer? I'm yep. amazed there's heard, a
0: Night Flyer.
1: This time the Night Flyer is in one of those ducks that can go on the water or land and then just terrorize <laughs> the two scops
0: and bells. Uh, I, I gotta I gotta look up what the remind myself what the name of the sequel was. Fear of flying. I'm on the wiki ah. page right now. There's a cancelled sequel section. Yes. <laughs> I would have watched the fuck out of that. That could have been a series, honestly, if you played hold it up, right. Hold up.
1: A sequel script entitled Fear of Flying was written by Pavia and Stephen King in the mid-2000s. King's in on this, focusing more on the Catherine Blair character as well as the origins of the Night Flyer killer. However, the duo failed to gain the required $10 million in financing from Hollywood Studios (laughs) due to the original 1997 film being viewed as merely a minor
2: cult hit. I Uh, like that King could not secure funds. I
1: I would like to back up. According to Wikipedia, which is notoriously wrong a lot of times for box office, the Nightflyer made $125,000. So I can see why they couldn't get $10 million to do a
0: sequel. I just love how that means King is a huge fan of this. <laughs> That's the
2: only one that got it right. But Mike, you have been talking about your love of the Night Flyer to us professionally and privately for years. So wax poetic about the story of a vampire with a private flyer's license.
1: But don't tell me anything that might ruin the experience of seeing the night flyer.
0: So I can't talk about that scene where he pisses blood while being looked at in the mirror, so it, he's invisible while he's pissing no, blood?
1: That that's fine. The trick is you just have to use aliases. So when you're talking about the night flyer, so I don't make the connection that it's the night flyer doing the thing, just say it's the evening driver. You, never, lost never connect-
0: you lost it. You lost it. You had it going there for a second. You lost it.
2: I just want to point out that scene you described is the only thing that happens in the short story. So I how that's what that movie was spun off of—just that image. Let's make a
0: movie out of this. So, so the Nightflyer I watched a lot whenever I was a kid because it's even though it's an it was an HBO uh, movie. But it ended up replaying a lot, usually on, like, late-night TV, on, like, UPN and USA and shit. USA at, like, midnight favorite, the Night Flyer (laughs) was. Fuck, it wasn't even until I was older I realized I was cursing it. Um, And that is a fucking R-rated-ass movie, too, so I don't really know how they pull any of that off. HBO, baby! But it had, like, the perfect amount of schlock. Because because it was in, from HBO, like, I think it was came out in 98, and it's got that prime, like, sleazeball, Tales from the Crypt kind of kind of filtering over it. Like, I, I love it so much for that, because it doesn't even feel like a King movie, though it has King stuff in it. It has a lot of King side characters you see for, like, one scene. And Hoss is said several times. <laughs> But I, I think that's what, like, I'm drawn with it. Like, I, I rewatched it for this. I mean, I actually watched it in a couple years. I revisit every once in a while. And I love it each and every time. But I'm always afraid, like, this is going to be the time where it breaks for me. But arguably, I think I did because it's the, it's not made by anybody in particular. Just, it's kind of just nobody. But it's schlocky Stephen King. Like, it's 90s schlock Stephen King. So, it's very unique unto itself. It's kind of, And it actually uses that schlock kind of on purpose from a, uh, weirdly, this odd examination of, like, journalism. Like, dirtbag journalism, which was, of course, very big <laughs> in the 90s.
1: Oh. So, it's the Stephen King, the post.
0: Yes. Like, it's Miguel Fair kind of, like, playing, like, this inside edition type, like reporter it has like this nightcrawler-esque like (laughs) vibe to it with the character it's like him like narrating he's flying around but it has like this cool investigation quality to it where i could actually kind of see this in better hands and done in a less schlocky manner being like a really cool mystery where it ends up being a vampire at the end where he's just hunting a serial killer but then the vampire is just fucking wearing a giant Dracula cape and shit and calls himself <laughs> Dwight Renfield. <laughs> Which is actually what? more or less getting what? across that, like, he's making himself look like Dracula just because he's a fan.
1: I'm, I'm so sorry. So he figures, Was I'm a White- vampire.
0: I'm going to just wear a Dracula cape.
1: Was Dwight Renfield an alias, like I suggested before, to throw me off from the actual characters so you don't spoil any of the plot?
0: No, that's his name.
1: Still not sure if I believe you. I'm gonna. We're gonna have to wait. The night flyer the...
0: goes by the name Dwight Renfield. Oh, I thought you said White Renfield. Oh, so did I. Oh no, Dwight, Dwight, as in Dwight Fry. Okay, I was so
1: confused. I'm like, that's such a
0: <laughs> White Renfield.
2: That's that's an incredible insult towards somebody. Listen <laughs> here, White Renfield.
0: You White <laughs> Renfield. But that's the only Renfield there is. <laughs>
1: There had to be, like, a Black Renfield in one of the Blackula films, right? You no, actually, it I don't now. think there was. No. I don't, I don't think, think so. back. I don't think there was, no.
2: And also, Blackula's Renfield would also be white, logically. It may.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's that's how that would play out. I'm sorry, I'm going to be stuck on stupid
0: <laughs> <laughs> white Renfield the rest of the you night. You really got stuck on white Renfield. It's such a silly name.
1: Doesn't that sound like somebody,
2: Blade, would fight in the seventies Tomb <laughs> of Dracula? <laughs> yeah. Comet? Yeah. Arch- <laughs> nemesis. <laughs> Let me shoot you with my gun filled with snakes or
1: some shit. Go on, White Bram Stroker, tell us a tale.
0: <laughs> Can we start calling you White Cody? <laughs> sure. Like, why? why not? Yay! Thanks, White Cody.
1: No problem, Daddy O.
0: I will. Uh, this just sounds like. Oh, I don't think that's a good idea, White around. Cody. Nope. Time for the Rainbow Connection. Oh, it seems like we're in some trouble this time, White Cody. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. And then you just made yourself into Kermit, which is was an the, odd was, way to take that. I was working my way into Kermit the whole time.
1: It was like a slow werewolf transform. You can't just jump into Kermit.
0: Cody, you're always working your way into Kermit. I mean, that's the dream, right? Anyway. But yeah, everybody should fucking watch the night goddamn night <laughs> flyer. It's If you can I find will... a copy... I don't care if everyone's like, why the fuck is this person just defending the Night Flyer? This trashy late 90s HBO made-for-TV movie based off of a not even well-remembered or remembered at all Stephen King's story. Nothing happens in it. It's just a
2: dude describing how to fly an airplane because King was really into research in the 90s. <laughs>
0: And it's just so ridiculous, and I think that's why I love it. Like he has a Dracula cape. He has like this weird ass monster face that gets revealed at one point. He's got like he still he sleeps in a pile of dirt in the back of his plane, with blacked out <laughs> windows and shit. It all sounds so delightful.
1: It's it really is. Like it's it's. I it's never perfect considered of where ridiculous. a flying vampire would have to sleep for the night, but it makes perfect sense. You
0: just snuggle up in the back of your
1: biplane with some dirt. Wait, is
2: it established if he can move over running water?
0: You know what? It 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 doesn't. Mm, that's what that's what they would have gone into in the sequel.
1: No, you can't fly minute.
0: over vampires. Can't fly over running water. Yeah, they they just can't like walk over it, which wouldn't make sense anyways.
1: That's basically just saying vampires can't swim.
0: Yeah, it did. Uh, that rule never made sense. Boats are okay. Yeah, boats are fine. It's it's it, very we, strange. A, a Dracula can walk over
1: frozen water as long as it doesn't break on him.
2: Well, what is frozen water if not just slow moving running water? Exactly. Okay.
1: This whole thing's bullshit. I'm gonna think
2: vampires aren't real at all, Cody.
1: Yeah, these rules are inconsistent.
2: Demons, on the other hand, absolutely cannot move over running water. I'll I I will believe that to, all the way to my grave. Oh, okay.
1: This was a weird thing I learned recently. Uh, I was having dinner with my family, and a friend of the family came over, and she was late because she was helping clean up after a church service. And uh, they were doing, like, the whole communion deal where you have your slug of wine and you get your Eucharist. She said after afterwards, the leftover wine is blessed, so it's sacred. The priest has to do a ritual to unbless the wine, which threw me the fuck off, because I didn't know you could cancel, oh, like— that. I didn't know you could take a mulligan on making something holy.
0: Oh, I'd take it back from you in that oh. <laughs> inanimate water? <laughs> nope,
1: changed my mind. No longer sacred. That, that just blows my mind. I didn't know priests had that power. I'd be taking it back all the time. Like, someone would be taking a sip, and would be like, nope, normal wine. You're
0: bad. You're drinking in church. Get out. It's almost yeah. like religion is just a lot of pointless, busy work. Well, I've always wondered about the logistics, too. Like, can they bless a lake?
1: could you Could you just permanently make like a river holy so you don't have to like bother doing anything afterwards like it's good,
0: just just jump in whenever you got sins, Cody, I'm gonna be honest, I think you can bless anything it's all fake uh,
1: but they they play by their own set of rules like if I no, they're religion, not sure. the, no
0: they're not the dull of religion
1: <sighs> they're they're they, it's an established religion they've got a, a rule book they've been playing by for years they they have their own lore hey, didn't you see Carrie. <laughs> And the Lord said, no blessing and then unblessing and then
0: re-blessing the wine. Stop it, Michael. I like how this is what breaks Cody of Catholicism.
1: <laughs> there's, there's a lot of little weird catches there, like Holy Days of like there There's like 200 days where they're supposed to go to church. But I asked a Catholic buddy, like, what happens if they miss one of the, the days where they're required to go to church? It's like, oh, nothing. You, you do a couple of Hail Marys. I feel like if you miss one of those, you should immediately go to hell. It's only fair. That's why those <laughs> days are required. A trap door just opens up beneath you. Oh. Wherever you are, like if you're in the middle of like bowling or something, you just go right to hell. Bowling? bowling. Wait, okay, question. Why does your location matter? I'm just saying because you're not in church. So I'm just saying wherever you are, if you're not in church on one of those holy days, straight to hell. If you're bowling, straight to hell. If you're like at grandma's house helping her out because she's sick, it doesn't matter. Straight to hell. And grandma too because she should be there.
2: So this has been a look at some of our favorite <laughs> entries into the canon of Stephen King adaptations. Not, not a not a definitive list of his absolute uh, best works, but just a, a little a little guide to some that have been kind of swept over the rug over the years. A few personal
1: favorites from ours. There's just hey, too many to count them all. Yeah. What's up, hey, Mike White
0: Cody? Do the ending of Stand By Me. <laughs> all of it? Like how far back am I going? <laughs> recite the entirety of Stand By Me.
1: Oh, Jesus. Okay, hold on. Let me find the wiki quote page. <laughs> I've, got, I've got some Richard Dreyfus dialogue to memorize. <laughs> Folks, if you've enjoyed this stupid show, there's going to be more stupid shows. We still have to do the, the bad Stephen King movies. That's right, the Knife Fighter somehow didn't make the cut for bad Stephen King. No, I'll so bring it up there, to there too. Alright, all alright.
2: <laughs> it walks into world.
1: To the <laughs> map, but not, it's got a twinner anyways thank you so much for listening to us if you'd like more box office pulp you can find us on stitcher we're on itunes just look up box office pulp online you'll find us we've got a facebook page we have a tumblr we don't use we're on twitter check us out am i forgetting anything anything do we have anything else any other plugs i feel like we should just make up some plugs so it sounds like we got cool shit going on, on the side i we're good all right folks that's a wrap shine on you crazy diamonds See what he did there, shine on, like the shining, which is a really good Stephen King thing we didn't talk about at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know no, I'm in different states, but my hand is just raised to the sky for a high five right now. No. Come, on. No. Come, on. Uh... Come on. Shine on. Yeah. yeah. Alright, catch you later. Yeah!
2: And then the Flash Gordon theme blares out of nowhere. This is
1: Box Office Pope Guy, and this has been a Pope Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight.
0: And now on with the show.